Yo, what up, man? It's your boy Elliot from Boston. Episode 10 of the EFB podcast about to drop right now. Got the homie turning into a Boston legend right now, Nat Anglin. Nat Anglin, what up, man? What up, brother? Brother, how you doing, man? Chilling, man. Thanks for taking the time, man. I appreciate it, man, for real. Hey, man, I mess. Obviously, home always comes first, and anybody that puts on for where we're from always gets, they always get first in line for me. So I, I appreciate it very much. Oh, man, I appreciate you, man. Where you at right now? Right now, you, uh, in 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 Arizona doing some stuff but you you currently live in LA right yes yes I moved out to Los Angeles about a year and a half ago uh right now at this very moment I just touched down in AZ I got some stuff going on out here I'm gonna get handled I'll be back in LA tomorrow um but I've been moving around a lot lately so I'm blessed I'm very blessed how's LA man because everyone whenever they talk about LA like I feel like they their smile perks up you know what I'm saying (laughs) like they always like they talk about the women. Wiz Khalifa talks about the weed, man. You know what I mean? How's L.A.? Yeah, man. L.A. is a different breed, but it's definitely – I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of negativity to be found in a lot of different places, but I, I, I've kind of hit a point or a stride in my life the last few years where I look for the positive, and LA, L.A.'s got a lot of them. Um, yeah, man, the, the women are gorgeous. The, the beaches are beautiful. The, the, the weather is just perfect. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways – there's a lot of ways to move and shake out there. So even if you don't have like kind of your regular nine to five job, kind of the way that a lot of us are used to back home, um, there's ways to make money out there. There's just, a, there's a lot to offer. Um, so man, I love LA. I really do. I, I, there's a lot of Boston transplants out there too. Funny enough, when I moved out, I realized there was some, but once I got out here, I was kind of blown away by how many, you know, Massachusetts and Boston area transplants there are out, out in LA. It's, it's a dope spot for sure. Oh, yeah. I heard that. I heard that. I heard there's a lot of, um, a lot of people that relocate out there and they, they make that their home. So it's almost like a, a second home away from home kind of thing. Yeah, baby Los Angeles. You know what I'm talking about? Dope, dope. <laughs> so for everybody who don't know Nat, tell them, you know, who who is Nat Anglin? You know, where's he from? What's he about? Who Who is Nat? I'm Nat Anglin. Yeah, man, that's my government. So, you know, look me up if you feel so inclined. My actual name's Nathaniel. So Nat was always short for whatever reason. I never really liked Nate much. So Nat's stuck. Um, I used to go by Natural. That was kind of my rap name when I was coming up in like 2011, 2012. And uh, recently I changed that just to go with my government. I thought it was an easier fit and I thought it was just a different time in my life. I thought it made sense. But yeah, man, I'm, I grew up in a town called Milton, Massachusetts. Uh, Milton is, uh, you know, the first suburb south of Boston. Uh, it's, I grew up right on the Mattapan line. So, um, you know, where I grew up, it was like, I kind of, I, I had the opportunity to, you know, I, I, I got dealt a really good hand. You know, I have a really, really good family and I was surrounded by some really good people early on, but also, you know, I kind of got a firsthand vision of kind of, you know, Boston itself as well. I just had to duck over, you know, the tracks one step and, um, you know, all of a sudden it was city life and it was the train and it was going downtown and it was all that sort of thing. So I kind of pride myself on the fact that I've been able to, you know, kind of, touch base with a few different walks of life. And I think, you know, kind of in Milton where I grew up on that little pocket right there, they call it Milton Pan affectionately enough, but that was kind of my first experience. It was kind of emblematic for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I, I've always tried to get in touch with, you know, my city in a lot of different levels, not just, um, you know, where I grew up, but also, you know, maybe the places I wasn't so comfortable being, maybe it was the places that other people had stories from. I think it's important when you, when you really love a place where you're from, you know, you need to understand not only the, the great things about her, you know, the Boston sports like, stuff and, you know, downtown, the Boston Common and like all the nice stuff. But then, you know, you got to understand like the bad things that are going on or maybe the tougher areas or the people that need some help. Um, I always thought it was important to, you know, just try to move around and, 
you know, try to understand not just the city, but the people in it, you know, because at the end of the day, what, what makes the city great isn't, isn't the goddamn architecture or, or that stuff. It's the people in it. So I always kind of prided myself on, you know, trying to be as in touch with the place as I could. Now, it's funny that you talk about growing up in Milton because, uh, you know, it's like uh, Ashmont train stations right there, you know, and, and it's like you're, you're one long road away from, you know, essentially like a really, really nice part in Boston. You know what I mean? Did you ever yeah. get uh, kind of hated on for, for growing up in, a, in an affluent town? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it was funny. Like I said, I I never really got it early. Like when I was young, like I said, I was I was I was I was I was blessed to have you know a good family around, and I just they were always really protected. But at the same time, I you know I credit my parents a lot for kind of being like, yo, like it's not always peaches and cream for everybody, and you gotta you gotta be aware of that not only for yourself but you know for them, man. You gotta respect you know your your surroundings and. I, yeah, I dealt with it a little bit growing up. I mean, all my, my most of my family's from Dorchester, so like I spent most of my my time when I was going out. Like by the time I hit like thirteen years old, like I wasn't really out in Milton. I was out in Dorchester. I was out in you know parts of Boston. I played little league in the in a RBI league, major league program that's in the inner city. Um, and at first, you know, I never really thought about it, but I remember talking to my dad years later, and he was just like, "Yeah, I put you in that program on purpose." Um, cause you know, it's not, it shouldn't always be like you get to live in your, your pretty little pocket. Like you need to see the world for what it is and you need to meet people from different backgrounds, not just racial or financial. It's just different, the box of life altogether. So it was important, um, you know, for me to do that. So I got hate on a little bit, you know, I'd be over out in Dorchester with my cousins and stuff and they'd be like, oh God, Milton boy, what's up? You pussy, blah, blah, blah. But it was just, that's part of the licks you got to take growing up. You know what I mean? It's. I've never shied away from it. People, people are always like, "Oh, he says he's from Boston." I'm like, "Dude, like, I, I taught in the inner city for longer than most of these dudes live there, so I really yeah. don't have time to hear for it." You know what I mean? Like, I'm a Bostonian. Like, I don't really care if I grew up ten feet outside or ten feet within, or if I grew up in like the heart of Dorchester. For me, I'm a Bostonian. I've put in a lot of work in the community there, and I think I've, you know, I love where I'm from. So yeah, some people will give you shit about it, but you just got to take it in stride. You joke with it. You know what I mean? It's really not a big deal. Well, it's funny because yeah, you get that all the time. You know, people are gonna, you know, they wanna they wanna put labels and say, man, if you can, if you from Cambridge, you ain't from Boston. If you from this spot, you ain't from Boston. And try telling Millie's he ain't a Bostonian. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's just it's it is it's it. I get it to a degree because there are a lot of people that try to put on like they're Bostonians and they really they can't tell you much about it. And I understand like the disdain for people like that. But yeah, like. Dude, like you're saying, exactly. Millie's or like even Dutch. Dutch rebels from Milton. You know yep, what I mean? Yep. She, grew up, she grew up two streets down the street from me. We didn't even know each other until music. Uh, we were just blessed to meet each other that way. But, you know, I mean, she's as Bostonian as anybody. I mean, yeah. she's a lot of time in a lot of different places. Um, and like you said, it's I don't think it's so much always where you're born. It's, it's more kind of like your mentality and kind of what you put in. You know, you get what you put in. And I always felt like I put in a lot. Um, yeah. And the thing is too that it's about how you present yourself. You know what I mean. So if you if you run around screaming Boston with your pants down by your knees, you know, thug life, this that, and then they're like, wait, hold up, but you you live in Milton. That's one thing. But if you're just a regular dude, yeah, you know, yeah. who who's dapping everybody up and looking at nobody different, man, ain't nobody gonna really give a shit. You know what I mean? People talk, they're always gonna talk. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. It's all of it. And I always said that you know, whether it's rap or anything else, you can't be a gimmick. If you if you're real and you're respectful, no matter, you know, I've been blessed, like I said, to have a lot of different experiences so far in my life, but. 
those are two things I've always stood by. If you're respectful to other people, no matter what the deal is, and you're, you're not fronting on some like shit you're not, like people are usually going to take pretty good care of you. So when was it that, uh, you know, this white dude growing up in Milton starts rapping? You know what I mean? Like, when, when did your rap career start? When do, you know, do you have that moment when you you can remember putting that, that pen to a pad? Yeah, you know, I've thought about it a lot. People have asked me that over the years. I think the first time I ever put like a pen to a pad, I was in like fourth grade, and I was I was in I was in a poetry class actually. It was at like the local library. Um, I was it was during the summer, and my parents were like cool about me being out in the summer, but they also said, you know, you got to be involved with something that challenges you mentally. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be schoolwork or programs like that, but like anything, chess clubs or. poetry readings or poetry writing that sort of thing and I remember fourth grade I really got into like the actual rhyming aspect of writing so I wasn't rapping necessarily I wasn't writing raps but I was writing rhymes and it kind of taught me from a young age to kind of gauge that and kind of look for it first time I like started writing legitimate like rap bars or like 16s was college Um, I was always a huge hip hop fan I was always a big rap fan I was studied like kind of not only the game at large but also the local scene um I had a lot of I was fans of people that were kind of in Boston anyways because I just thought it was cool to have people where I was from you know putting on through music and then like around college I started writing 16s but I was a bit shy I didn't I didn't I didn't record anything I was really good at freestyling I would joke around at parties and freestyle and stuff so I could go off the top um people really thought it was funny and then right as I broke out of college probably like 2 years out I started like making like records on my laptop just as like a kind of a test to see if I could do it and I showed a few people that I knew would never give me. I don't like yes men, man. Like, if I hate them. I, I hate them. If I'm doing something stupid that makes me look stupid, like I, I'm lucky to have a few people in my life that'd be like, "You look like an idiot." Yep. So when I did it and I showed it to them, I was actually kind of taken aback because um, they were like, "Dude, this is like." They were. I think they were kind of surprised that I was that good at it. Um, so as soon as that happened, that's when I started to kind of really start buckling down and recording and learning how to like kind of really write proper songs but yeah i mean it's it's a it's a loaded question i guess i'd say the first time i ever wrote like legitimate rhymes was fourth grade and then after that probably college right out of college so who were some of the um early people that influenced you either from the city or or commercially just because the city has always had a lot of talent in my opinion the city you know has had some you know long-term hip-hop heads you know you know and we're going back to you know, the OGs, and then recently, you know, the Fenelias, the Lou Armstrongs. Um, now we got, you know, people like, you know, Cousin Stiz and Mikey Christmas blowing up and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So who who either in the city influenced you or, or who, or who you know, commercially was that, that one person who you said, man, if I could emulate that or if I could do this, then maybe I could do that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And it is, again, so listening to rap's a lot different than writing it, right? So, like, I've, I've never been a type to front on, like, what I am. But that being said, I listen to a lot of dudes that are about that life just because I feel like there's a lot of lessons in what they're saying, you know what I mean? I might not necessarily be able to totally relate to it. It doesn't mean I had to come up, like, you know, dirt poor with, like, shootings going on around my house. But the fact that they can, you know, kind of show me what they've come from, you can learn a lot when you listen to somebody else's stories. And I think that was kind of how I fell in love with hip-hop. And I think... The number one artist, honestly, and it's funny, a lot of people joke around because, you know, like I said, I'm not, I don't rap about hood shit and I'm not like a, I'm not, not, I'm not that, um, would be Lloyd Banks. Uh, Lloyd Banks, when I first started hearing him in college, was like when, during his like mixtape runs, which I think are is as legendary as pretty much anyone has ever Super slept on. Lloyd yes. is super slept on, in my opinion. Yeah, 03, 03, 04 Banks, it was not, 
there was not many folks messing with him ever. Like I, I swear, I mean that sincerely. I go back and listen to his tapes a lot still to this day, like at the gym and other stuff when I'm feeling a little bit more aggressive. And that dude has bars for days and he had just like for his age and like what he was doing was just bananas. And I think I, I really love punchlines. I really love the idea of wordplay. And, I, you know, back then Banks was, you know, he was the punchline king. And I think when I first heard Victory and like all those freestyles he was doing, that's when I was like, yo, I, I think I can do this, man. Like I was like, I think I can write to a point and kind of wow people with what I have to say. And then I always thought his delivery was excellent. Um, he would have that cool kind of laid back monotone thing going on. And then all of a sudden he'd punch you in the throat with like the nastiest punchline. It was like, it was like a trap. It was like, he was like luring you in with this smoky voice. And then he was just like, boom. And you were like, Oh my God, that was nasty. Like the, I'll put a dot on your head. Like it's part of your religion. I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> from like, um, so that, that he was like a direct influence. I mean, I obviously had more, you know, guru was a huge one coming out of Boston. Um, you know, Jay-Z, Nas, all those guys, but locally, the, my biggest inspiration locally, I've always said this is Jay to ask my brother, Jake, um, yeah. you know, yeah. greater good click. Um, another, an, another name I would have to say is the camp. I really messed with the camp. I was at UMass when they were coming up, et cetera. Uh, Big Deese, I think, is probably one of the best rappers ever, bar for bar, to come out of like the area. I mean, he's not as well known nowadays, but I, I mean, his freestyles used to get me through some mornings. So, those two dudes were also, uh, you know, big big influences as well. It's funny. I remember listening to the Hunger for More. Um, you know that song that Banks got. You know, think you so gangster when he's like, you know, I'll feed a nigga a show like Taco Bell. I still remember saying, you know having that my CD player like oh shit you know oh, <laughs> like, yeah. like you know banks had had that uh had that ability and that was at that time when when punchlines was was it you know with with banks fabulous cassidy you know those type of, those kind of rappers but i always did look at at banks as is one of those upper echelon you know punchline lyricists you know what i mean yeah for sure and then just that whole movement i mean fifth i mean fifth kind of hyping him up during the you know the hot nine seven freestyles on like he was like nine i'll never forget that he's like, i'm 19 in here i'm not gonna waste this i'm like this dude is a kid and he's up there <laughs> spazzing like yeah, he's up yeah. there going nuts so um, you know, Banks influence you, you start writing, you know, like you said, you got yes men. I mean, you you got people who aren't yes men who are telling you, man, you know, this is for real. You could do this. Uh, what was the first project that, that you actually put together and dropped and, and really had confidence in? So the first project I put out was in 2011. Um, and it was funny because I'm still proud of the project, but it was called The Bartender. And it was kind of... Originally, I was supposed to be in a, in a, in a side group with et cetera from the camp. We were going to call ourselves the barbarians, you know, bars and rap bars and then, you know, that sort of thing. And then, uh, you know, when I put that project out, I was joking because I was kind of working, I was teaching, but I was working part time as a bartender, but I was also rapping. So I was like, that's a double entendre. The, the cover art was like the famous, like, it's like a famous picture of, uh, the guys in Chicago, like he's tending bar and there's people kind of sitting around in it. And I had myself prop Bundy. who's another Boston dude, uh, made the artwork and put me into it. And, um, it was, it was a bit long looking back. It was like 15 tracks, I think. And I think most 12 out of the 15 were like original production, um, which was a lot for my first kind of project, but I was new. I, I didn't understand the way the game worked yet. Um, but I mean, I, it definitely got me some shows. I mean, I, I put that out. I did some lead shows. I opened up for big crit, I opened up for some other people in the area, um, and it kind of got me on the map. And I remember my first show because of the bartender, and I dropped it with a lot of confidence. I ended up getting Dutch Rebel, 
to open up for me, which is a huge deal because she was already popping at this point. Like yeah. I, was, I was just trying to get people to hear me. So I, you know, I brought like 200 people out for my first show um, at Harper's Ferry and it went well. But then I was like, you know what? I need to throw my own. I threw my own. Dutch came out. And I think a lot of Boston dudes who knew the game came out. And once they saw me rap, they were like, oh, well, this dude's not, he's not, he's not whack. That's for sure. Um, so that was the first one. But my, my first project that I kind of look at is my first actual project even though technically it's not as 20 something, uh, you know, that was the one where a lot of people were watching me and I feel like I delivered a solid project that people like had a lot of good things to say about. I remember, um, you know, the, the buzz surrounding 20 something, you know what I mean? And, and, and the uh, promotion that was going into it and the hype that was surrounding it. I enjoyed that project, man. You know what I mean? Like I really did. Uh, you know, I remember putting it on my, on my iPod and, and just blasting it, and and you know, there's one thing I, I want to do on this podcast is when I have an artist on, um, I think it's real easy to tell them, yeah, give me your your five favorite songs or whatever. I'm gonna tell you my favorite songs from the joint. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And and I thought, uh, you know, twenty something, go to work, February, uh, you and me, those are some of my favorite joints on the album. You know what I mean? Um, Thinking about those joints right there, do you have do you have one that like sticks out more than the other? One that's your favorite one? Because I remember talking to my boy OTO when he dropped his tape and asked him, "What's your favorite joint on the album?" He's like, "Man, every joint is like my kid. I can't love one more than the other." You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so um, what's that like for you? Like, do you have a favorite joint on that album, or, or is the the whole project itself a collective um, smile that puts that, that that comes across your face when you think about it? Yeah, man, it's definitely a collective smile. I mean, I think 20-something is emblematic of that whole summer. I mean, that was when 12 or 12 came out. Like you said, that buzz, I, I felt that buzz, man. Like, that buzz is real, not just for me, but other people in the city. And, I, you, you know, I was just so blessed as, like, somebody who grew up, like, kind of idolizing certain people around the way, but then also wanted to do it myself. And then all of a sudden, I find myself neck and neck with people that, you know, people are talking about some of the best artists in the city, you know, and I'm right there. You know what I mean? Like, I remember the 12 for 12 freestyle like it was yesterday. And then like a month later, I dropped 20 something. And I, I think now looking back at almost four years later, it's, it's, it's a truly like awesome thing. I go back and listen, it's still in my car. I go back and I'll listen to it. And it'll take me down memory lane. I don't know if I have a favorite of it. I really liked go to work. I thought it was just a good idea for where I was. It was very real, but at the same time it was catchy. You know, I was working two different jobs. I was trying to rap. I was showing up to work hungover or exhausted every night of the day of the week. And it was meant to be jokey and fun. It, it had kind of a dip set feel to me, the beat. Um, so I really liked to go to work. February, it's funny you say that, that you liked it that much. My, my manager, Reggie, at the time, uh, he, he always said that was one of my his favorite songs. I mean, that was real. I mean, that was tough. I had just gone through a really tough breakup. Um, and that was just about kind of, you know, really sharing a different side of myself. It's one, it's easy to go out there and be like, I'm the fucking man and talk about stealing dudes, bitches and like smoking fucking weed and getting drunk. <laughs> but like, sometimes you got to sit up and buck up and be like, yo, I'm real. Like I'm a human being, man. I was, you know, I, I we get into relationships, you get your heart snatched out of your chest. It's bad shit happens. People get killed, you know, and, and it's important to share people because honestly, those are the type of records, even though they might not be your most favorite on the album, they end up kind of drawing people in a little bit more because they're like, I can identify with that. You know what I mean? We've all gone through hardships. We've all gone through breakups. We've all gone through tough things in our lives. Um, and I think that was another one stand out for a lot of people. Um, but it's funny. Yeah, man, it's always interesting hearing. I, I, I think it's dope that you do that. I like hearing from people what their favorite records were like you and me. I always thought it was an interesting song. It was kind of risky for me, but it was like a Fritz and the tantrum song that I sampled with Pete Needy. 
And, you know, it was, it was, it was about kind of finding balance and like looking back at, you know, a broken relationship and realizing you were like onto bigger and better things. And it was just, it was a lot of memories, man. So when I look back, I don't think I have a particular one. You know, Monsters is another one. I love Monsters a lot because it was FN. It was like all of us. The energy was crazy. The fucking video was crazy. So I'd, I'd probably say Monsters is up there too. I don't know. But yeah, like you said, as a whole project, you look back and man, it just brings a smile to my face. That was a really fun summer. A lot of fun memories around it. Uh, it was just a great time to be an artist in Boston, and I was just lucky enough to be a part of it. So how long after uh, 20-something did you uh, start you know, the process of transitioning to, uh, to Nat Anglin? So after 20-something came out, I, uh, I hit A3C um, down in Atlanta, and then I did South by Southwest that spring, which was a huge, that was probably my biggest show to date outside of Boston. Um, how many heads for that one? What's up? How many... Uh, you know how many people at that show that South by Southwest? Because I heard that that the energy there is amazing. Yeah, the energy is crazy. It's just so spread out now that it's not always necessarily the amount of people. It's kind of who's there. And like I remember, I walked in, Killer Mike was there, and like okay. some other people were there, and it was just like, wow, this is for real. Like I'm in the room with like tastemakers. I'm in the room with rappers. I'm in the room with journalists. I met like DJ Booth down there. That's how I got you know projects put up on DJ Booth and you know other people like online that were tastemakers. So. I'd say there's probably 150 people in that venue, maybe okay. 100, okay. but it was like the right, you know what I'm saying? It was like the right people were there and I had a good set. It was a lot of energy and, uh, you know, I brought Dutch out for a song. It was just, you know, our, our energy was off the charts when we were on stage together. Um, so that, you know, that drew, drew people in too. Um, so the transition didn't really start for a bit after that. After that, I actually released a project, um, <clears throat> you know, that spring after 20 something, you know, the bombs went off at the marathon. Yeah. Um, you know, I was teaching at the time I lost a student. Mark Richard was a student at my school. Um, and that was a really devastating blow, not just personally, but also to the community and, you know, to the city as a whole, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. Um, and through that, you know, I did kind of find solace in writing a lot. Um, you know, I, 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 my life, your life doesn't go on hold when something goes on like that, but it, it almost picks up the pace. Um, and a lot of my writing for ways to go, which came out that following November kind of started, from the bombings on through the summer and kind of about healing and looking at the city as a whole and, you know, seeing kind of the divisiveness that still exists to this day there. And, you know, that was 2013, like, so November 2013, same day Marty Walsh got elected, actually. It was election day. I released that project. Um, it was called Ways to Go, and I was still under natural, and I was officially on DJ Booth. And looking back, I'm not sure if it was a mistake uh, because the homies at DJ Booth are great people. They do great stuff for the culture as a whole, and I was, it was a big look for me. But I think a lot of people in Boston were almost like handcuffed because I only released it on that website. So I didn't okay. release it on SoundCloud. I didn't release it on, you know, I put it on iTunes, but I didn't put it everywhere like I had before because I wanted to kind of separate myself a little bit and try something new. It got really good feedback. Um, I think to this day, I mean, it's, it's a really strong project. I mean, I think it's better than 20-something. I just think it's a different kind of spin. Um, and it had, you know, it had a lot of like realness on that. I was looking at some, you know, 20 something was more about me yeah. of kind of a diary. And then when I went over to ways to go, that was more about like my city. That was more about like me and, and, and my city. Um, so after I released that, you know, I was confident it was weird, man. Boston's weird. And you'll hear a lot of rappers and other people talk about this, but like support's a finicky thing. You'll get it. Um, and you'll, you'll, you people will tell you they're giving it, but then, you know, kind of when push comes to shove and it's like showtime, you never forget who shows up and you never forget who doesn't show up. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll never forget my ways to go release party. I think I, I, I did it. At Who's on first. I think I, I pulled three, three fifty. Um, 
And I just, I don't know, afterwards I felt kind of, not disrespected, but I was kind of like, you know, people kind of just were like, oh, ho-hum about it. And I'm like, dude, I just drew like, no, that's a lot of people. I yeah, didn't get yeah. downstairs. I didn't get, I didn't get one of these other fucking venues that I've rocked at with other artists, you know, but that's a lot of people. That's money. And it's also just, you know, it was showing that I had people interested in my music. Um, so yeah, I mean, after ways to go, I found myself kind of a little, I was a little miffed. I was kind of like, well, what do I got to do? Um, so I kind of went in, not hiding, but I went into more like planning mode. And that's when I started coming up with the idea that maybe it was time to start thinking about a name change. Natural it was a fun name. It made sense. My name's Nat. Natural, like, you know, I also play baseball. So it was like the natural, like the baseball player, but also I'm just a natural at the rap game, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was hard to market. That's a tough name to market. Yeah. It's a tough name to get out there. So I said, you know what? Talk Reggie actually brought it up to me. My manager at the time, one of my best friends, and he just was like, I think you got to go in that angle. And I think nobody else in the world has that name. And, you know, why not? And I was like, yeah, man, I, I love my name. You know what I mean? So I was like, let's go for it. And uh, after Ways to Go dropped in 13 and then to 14. 2014, I didn't release a project on purpose. I released some freestyles. I released some singles here and there. Um, but I didn't want to release it, um, anything under, until I had a proper thing. And that's kind of where I, my transition started into Mad England. So you talk about... Um you know, you talk about your manager a lot, that relationship that you have, you know, you know, no yes men allowed in the clique. So what's what's your team looking like? You know, you, how many people you surround yourself with? Um, who plays what role? Because um, a lot of times I think what people fail to realize is that, um, you know, that there's one there's one singular artist sometimes, but then there's a team of people behind them who, who they either lean on for creativity, for for um, direction, for management purposes. Like what's your team looking like? Yeah, it's interesting. So in Boston, it was a bit smaller. I was with Romy Entertainment. That's Reggie Charles. He does a lot of promotion around the city. He actually managed Dutch Rebel for a little bit. Um, for, for that summer in 2012, leading in, you know, me and Dutch were on the same roster. And I thought, I mean, that was big to me. She was bigger than me, no doubt about it. She was one of the biggest artists in the city. And for me to just even be in the studio with her, rocking shows with her, doing singles with her, uh, shooting videos with her, that was like a big learning experience. And I'm blessed to be able to call her. Like, that's my sis. That's my fam. Like, she's like a really good friend. Um, and then Reggie... You know, took a chance on me, man. He walked up like one of my first shows was opening for Jada S because we were boys anyways, and he put me on on a big show for his release party. And Reggie just happened to be there early. He saw me rap, and I, you know, I was kind of doing my thing. I was, you know, I, I had something to prove. And um, you know, I, he came right up right after the show. He said, "Dude, that shit was dope. We got to we got to sit down and talk." And sure enough, that built into something nice. So it was me, Reggie. Um, teams are tough. I, I, if you know, they say friendship and business don't mix. I mean, so, sometimes that is true, but with rap, it can be difficult because there's a lot of people spending money out there that get fucked. Um, you hear stories about it. Like I just, I was reading about that Joiner Lucas story not long ago. Him giving Karen Civil like fifty thousand dollars or some bullshit, yeah, uh, and getting nothing in return, and you know, just other things. And I've dealt with publicists that I've had good experiences with to a degree. I've dealt with other publicists that I have horrible experiences with. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird. It's a comfort thing. If you trust a person and you feel like your money's being well spent, do it because trust me, no matter how nasty you are for the most part, unless you don't have, you know, unless you have a team behind you of a, it could be three, it could be 15, you know, videographer, uh, writers. And I, I don't mean, I don't mean for your bars. I mean for like, you know, music videos, you know, yeah. stuff that you might not even think of. Um, Creativity, creatively, I, I, that's a different, that's a different thing than I'm used to, man. I, I write all my shit. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, 
like if people want to get together on a hook or maybe float a hook by you, that's different. I don't, I don't judge that the same. That's like the idea of a song. You want to talk about the construct of a song. Someone wants to kind of push you in the direction of a flow that you're on to something. That's, that's fine. But as far as the actual writing piece, like I don't let nobody's writing my rhymes. Uh, I just can't, I, I can't do that. I'd rather just not rap. <laughs> you know. <what> I mean? <laughs> um, but it is, it's tough. You need a, you need a team. You need people that are going to, you need money. Um, to put out there. It doesn't always have to be a huge amount, but you definitely need to invest in yourself and you definitely need people you trust around you to handle their appropriate positions. And I think the biggest thing is if everyone plays their position, you're probably going to be successful. The manager handles management. Your publicist handles public stuff, like getting you a media connections, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then a big thing for local artists coming up is you got to go to shows, man. You got to go out to support other people. Yeah. It's not always about you. You got to go and see what else is out there. You got to see what else is popping. You got to go see how people rock, what they don't rock with. You got to see what the venues are like. You got to taste what the world's like. And that's probably my biggest piece of advice to younger artists coming up. So when were the final days of Nat Anglin in Boston? Yeah, so that was a weird leave, man. Like you said, I'm a pretty outspoken advocate of Boston, to put it politely. I'm very, very uh, loud and aggressive. <laughs> but uh, it was tough, man. Tough. Leaving was tough, but I, I felt like I owed it to myself, and I felt like I owed it to like you know the people here in a lot of ways. I felt I was like, look, I've done a lot here, um, you know, in Boston. I, the music thing was kind. I felt like after Ways to Go, I kind of, I just kind of had that feeling, like. I, I just don't feel like I can really go much further right now here. Yep. I'm not saying I can't go further in general and rep Boston, that whole thing. But like here, if I stay here and I'm balancing three jobs and I'm not really committing myself to just the music and like getting shows and going, you know, I, I'm just too restricted. So I was like, you know what? I got to go. And I decided kind of midway through 2014 that I was going to be out. And, uh, you know, I told people kind of last minute, people were almost shocked. And then, yeah, man, I walked, I walked right out of, uh, my, my parents' house, um, 2014 uh december and i got in the car with my cousin brian regal he's from dorchester uh, he's an actor out here and he uh him and i drove across country and when we landed in la it was 2015 so that was uh that was i kind of left natural behind there it's still a nickname you know people still call me natural that's cool i, I mess with it but everything i put out since then is nat anglin and uh you know i combine it with acting and writing and some other things as well so you went to L.A. to to pursue music, like you said, put everything in the music, but also to pursue an acting career too, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the way I look at it, rap's a pretty oversaturated market. It's not that I, I'm giving up or, or I'm not. It's just more I think the two are kind of interchangeable. I think you can, you know, a lot of people don't know when I was in school, I was a film studies major. I was a communications film studies major, and I, you know, my original passion was writing screenplays. Um and I figured once I got out here, you know, even if it is rap and screenwriting or if it's rap and acting, it's kind of all in the same thing. It's entertainment business. So, you know, if you get out here and you can bag a few commercials and make a few bucks for yourself, it's a good way to fund your rap music career. Um, if you get out here and you write some stuff and you sell it, it's a good way to fund your rap music career. Or if you get out here and people hear the right music, it's popping off. You know, you got guys like Donald Glover. You got, you know, Childish Gambino. He, he's got his own show on FX now. You know what I mean? Like he came up as a rapper and a comedian and now he's in movies. Uh, T.I., you know, all these dudes that you've seen over the years that have kind of done the same thing. Uh, I just think it's good to, you know, be ready in case something does break on one of them. You know, it's kind of like it, there's a house, but there's three doors to get in. So I'll take any door to get in. Well, it's funny that you that you say that, you know, when you're talking about Childish Gambino because even looking back at some of the biggest ones who did that, you know, you got... You got Drake who started off in uh, um, on that Nickelodeon show. Um, you got you know people like uh, like Nick Cannon. You got Albie Back who was in uh, in that movie with Ti and ATL. You got uh, Ro Timmy 
was in um power now as dre um right even um even lil dicky um lil dicky you know you know he was on an interview and he was saying that he originally um wanted to uh you know write screenplays and 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 write sketch comedy and that music has allowed him to get those meetings sooner you know what i'm right. saying so right. so right. it's like one hand washes the other you know what i mean it's it's yeah. like, like you said uh either either the acting is gonna is gonna blow your name up a little bit so that people can get the music or the music will blow up and all of a sudden these acting gigs start coming up too you know what i mean yeah no for sure it is any other guys even on the lower cusp like uh it's like Mike Studd, he's more of like kind of the college rap scene, but he, you know, he's another one. I think he's a Calvin Klein model now, and he's doing some other you know stuff online. He has his own show on Esquire now. You know what I mean? It's a reality TV show, but it's the same thing. It's like like you're saying, the the, the more ways you can get into the game, it's kind of like baseball, right? You take baseball, it's like, dude, I'm a good hitter. They're like, okay, cool. Can you run? It's like, nah. Can you like field? They're like, nah. Like I'm a DH. It's kind of like, okay, well maybe we'll take a shot. But if you're like, yo, dude, I played third, short, and second at a high level. I'm fast, you know, I, you can train, you know, it's just any way you can get in is your best yeah. bet. You know what I mean? And that's just kind of the way I look at it. And I, I like it. I like acting. I, you know, I'm a Gemini. I'm all fucked up in the head. I got like two personalities going on <laughs> anyways. So, you know what I mean? I, I feel like it kind of naturally trans goes over and, you know, hip hop and rap. I mean, if anybody see me live, um, you know, not everyone's gonna like your music and I'm cool with that. But if anyone's seen me live for the most part, they know I put it down. So it's, you know, when I, it's a performance. So, you know, it's, it's kind of the same ballpark. So what was the process like in getting uh, Welcome to Los Angeles together? Because I love that project, man. Thank you. Man. I, 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 I love that project. I, I love, I love the package around it. I love the artwork. I love uh, the platform that it's on. When it, you know you're talking about SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, um, all that. That's that's the new age. That's the age that we're in. You know what I mean? Um, how was it putting that project together? Because it seemed like that one was was carefully crafted. Yeah, I, so this is probably my most carefully crafted. Um, you know, I was in a space for my first three albums where it was kind of like I felt like I was in a rush to keep up with the buzz. I think I let myself cool off a little bit after Ways to Go. I got a little in my own head, and I was kind of I was I wasn't hurt, but I I just like I said, it was a weird feeling, kind of feeling like, well, what am I you know what am I missing here? Yeah. So I took a step back. I did a lot of thinking. I never stopped writing no matter what I do. And, uh, you know, as I was leaving, I had already recorded a couple joints here in Boston because um, I was thinking about putting them out. And I was like, you know what, let's just hold on to them. Um, so as I drove out to, to L.A., I did some writing. And then once I landed in L.A., I thought to myself, you know what, you know, don't worry, don't force it, it'll come. And then, you know, the Super Bowl happened. And that was when Butler had the pick. Mm. New England Patriots won. And I was there. I went to Glendale with a couple of my Los Angeles buddies, um, you know, kids from the Boston area that were out there, including my cousin and my buddy Mike. And then my buddy Yancey, who's actually a NorCal kid. And we went in and we snuck into the after party. Um, I was on TMZ. I was on stage with all the Patriots. Like I was celebrating with them after the win. It was just kind of a fairy tale for a Boston sports fan. It was like, so what happened was after we broke in, I wrote a story or a blog about it and I put it out there and all of a sudden it exploded. Boston.com picked it up. All these places picked it up and had like 60 or 70,000 views in a few days and it was just, it was lit. So we knew we had to kind of rush and I was like, dude, what are we going to do with this? All of a sudden we're sitting in MTV offices about a potential reality show and all of a sudden we're dealing with, you know, execs in lost West Hollywood and we're just like, yo, 
dude, this is just me. Like, that's what we kept telling him. This is just us, dude. We're like Patriots fans. Like, we went to the game. We were just as shocked as everybody else. We got thrown out of the bar because it was a Seattle bar. Like, shit was wild. And we just ended up sneaking in and raging. Like, and it was. It was fun, man. Like, I, I partied with those dudes as after they won. And, like, as a sports fan, as you would know, you know, there's no better feeling. It's like winning and, like, finally, you know, getting that, like, you know, all that buildup. And then you're you're there with the players and seeing kind of their – response was just as crazy so after that all like i said long story short after that all kind of exploded it kind of put us in the limelight without us knowing at that point i was like you know what man like this is a good time to start getting my shit together you know the the spotlight's back on it might not necessarily be on me because i'm a rapper but it's on us and uh you know people espn hit me up about using certain music we got we got invited to the espies we went to the espies and like it was just nuts so when as this was all going on i kept writing and i realized you know what this is what i'm going to call my project i want to call this welcome to los angeles and i want it to be about my journey starting obviously in my hometown of boston uh, and then moving to los angeles and if you listen to the album the first three songs uh Letters I Never Meant to Send, that was written in Boston, recorded in Boston. The second song, Go West, was written in Boston, recorded in Boston. And then the third single, which was the lead single, Shh, or Can I, was uh, written in Boston and recorded in Boston. And at that point, I moved to L.A. And then everything else after that was recorded in L.A. Uh, And I thought it was important to do that. I wanted to, you know, record in the kind of familiar spaces for my first couple records at home. But then when I went to L.A., I experimented with different studios, different artists, different engineers, uh, different locales, different environments uh, to kind of really give that feel. I wanted people to, you know, go on the journey with me. Like I'm moving from what I've called home for 30 years out to chase my dreams, to do what I came to do. I want to put on for where we're from while I'm doing it, you know, ride with me. And that was kind of the way the construct of the album was set up. So it took, you know, I, I started writing and recording probably in 2014 for it. Um, and I originally wanted to release it in June of 2015. That just didn't happen. Um, you know, it just, it wasn't going to happen then. Um, and I had a show with the house of blues on sunset in Hollywood. And that was a big show, a 617 event. It was on 617, um, with Brandon Torrey, another artist from Brockton, Mass. Millie's came out for that one. That's why I wanted Millie's on the joint. So the reason I put Millie's on it was, you know, he was part of that journey. Even though he only showed up for that show, you know, he came out from Boston because he was in L.A. And he was like, yo, can I come up? I was like, dude, I want you to come out and do a song. I had him come out and do a song. He messed with it. The, the energy was crazy. And then I was like, you know what? I want him on this record. I want him in the middle of that album. That's going to be kind of like a staple of when I recorded that song. So when he came out, that's when I already knew. I was like, I got to have Millie's on this project. I've always wanted to work with him. Um, and that's why, you know, he came out. He was out in L.A. with me for that show for that one night. It was a big deal for me. Um, so, yeah, the project just kept going. And then over the last year in L.A., I had a few other records I wanted on the project. I ended up scrapping. Uh, I cut it down. I wanted it no bigger than 10. Um, and if you follow the construct, it starts in Boston, arrives in L.A., and then just kind of looks back on the journey by the end so that was kind of the arc of the album i gotta say that joint with millie's is probably like my favorite joint on the album i i I just think the chemistry on that joint is dope i would love to see that joint perform live yeah me and him have talked about it i was trying to get him out for my release show in boston uh in june he was on the road i mean that dude's killing it he that you know millie's is one of the harder working guys out of the bean He's one of the you know more accomplished hip hop artists out of the bean the last few years. I mean, he was just on tour at the Smokers Tour, right? Smokers yeah, Tough yeah, yeah. on. 
Um, he's going on tour this fall with Sammy Adams. I got a lot of love and a lot of respect for him. Uh, he's a kid that he was already rapping before I kind of was on the scene. So I, he, like I said, I studied the scene. I knew who he was. I watched how he moved. And to see his progression has been dope. And I agree. Lock and key is different for me. I stepped out of my normal little kind of East Coast sound. I went a little more trap style. But yeah. like I thought it was something we could both do. He's lyrical. I'm lyrical. And like you said, it was a good energy. Um, you know, it was crazy. When I sent him that record, he had just gotten fucking uh, – surgery on his uh wisdom teeth and he's like bro i can't even open my mouth off like i'll send you the shit i promise i'm like no it's cool bro like we had already kind of bounced ideas off each other and we had talked like i said he had came out to la for the show and then <laughs> like the first day he could like talk this motherfucker was in the studio and he like sent me the verse and like this shit's lit like this is dope like this is what i'm talking about this is that this is that shit and uh yeah i mean everything about that record's so blossom i mean if you listen to the opening it's like a, it's guru talking about traveling and like having to watch your back and like i found it, it's like an old like clip from some freaking interview we did in amsterdam back in like the early 2000s and i was just like this is this is boston man this is yeah. me and billy's guru on the shit uh, fuego diego who produced it is also a rapper named marlon jean who works with reggie uh he's from brockton so you know it was it was a it was a lot of fun to work on that record with millie's so right now where is nat angling at with the music with the acting um What's the response that you've gotten from Welcome to Los Angeles? It's been great, man. Um, it's funny. I released it on my birthday, June 21st, um, which was actually funny enough. The first project I ever put out, June, sorry, uh, The Bartender, that was also released on June 21st. It was 2011. So I felt like Welcome to Los Angeles was a really personal project, and I felt like I needed to, I needed to make it not only for people that were fans, but also for myself. It was a big kind of, this is coming full circle. I still have something left. I still have something to prove. Um, you know, there's a lot of people I think that forgot about me and then, you know, now all of a sudden some things work out and all of a sudden those same people pop back up. So it's funny how to see like the reactions of certain folks, it's funny to see how like Boston's changed since I've been gone. Uh, like you said, cousin Stiz and Michael Christmas, some of these other dudes are killing it, but now you're starting to see a lot of people come in, you know, and just kind of, they just think that's, that's all that exists in Boston. That's, that's no disrespect to those dudes. Like those are like Tim LaRue is. Tim LaRue and I have been boys since he, he came around, and I, I got nothing but love and respect for him and his movement. I'm really proud of him. I'm really proud of Stiz. It's really dope to see younger cats coming out of the city, especially the inner city, um, you know, to make big moves, and I fuck with them. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of other people there, and, you know, it's important that people don't get caught up in all that shit, you know, make sure, you know, Dutch Rebel has, has a great music career going. Guys like Edo. And guys like Terminology or guys like Slano and, you know, all these dudes that are, you know, making serious moves in the music or acting or whatever, you know, make sure we support them, too. I mean, that's all I'm saying. I mean, not everything might be your brand of music. I get that. Um, but just don't I just don't like when people say, oh, that's Boston, that's Stiz or all oh, that Boston, that's that's Christmas or oh, that's Boston, that's Dutch. So, you know, there's a lot of really dope bars, a lot of dope talent working together, trying to get out. Um, so just, you know, kind of keep your ear to that. Um, <laughs> I'm just really glad that now it's not it's not just oh it's Boston that's Benzino you know what I mean because yeah for sure <laughs> yeah we're we're in a good space as far yeah. as there's a lot of dope young cats coming out working together you know there's a lot of different types of music coming out I think that's the beautiful thing about Boston it's it's a really overlooked city culture wise you know we have Mad Cape Verdeans Mad Haitians Mad Vietnamese um, you know not to mention the Irish white boys like myself like some of these you know the the way that the, the melting pot kind of gets dissolves in like the mainstream is dope when you go back and look at the music you got guys like slain on tracks with like finalia you know what i mean like that like 
Dutch, who's a Haitian-born artist that moved to Boston at a young age, um, you know, stiz from from Fields Corner, like where I kicked around when I was a younger kid. You know what I mean? Like, so it's yeah. it's 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 great to see it all kind of come together, and it's it's a really good way to you know shed light on the diversity that really is in Boston, and sometimes does get overlooked in the mainstream. So it's 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 we're in a good place, like you said, we're in a really good place. The music scene there back there for sure. I love the fact that the Boston catalog is so diverse, like you said, you know, where you got like, you got Fennell, you know, dude from JP, who who I think Fennell got bars for days. I mean, just his catalog alone is probably 10, 11 albums deep, 15, 20 plus tracks on each album, you know what I'm saying? Like, his dad Piff catalog is crazy. And then you got someone like yourself, um, you got someone like... You know, Dutch Rebel, like you said, Term. You got Primo Prophet from East Boston on that trap sound. You got OTO from Roxbury. You got Paws uh, from Rosendale. You know what I mean? Like, there's just so many different types of music that you can vibe with that if you just stuck to the Boston catalog itself, you you have the diversity that people look for commercially. You know what I'm saying? Oh, 100%. And it is. It's good. It's good. Not like that's my thing. And this generation is easy to get kind of sucked into the, you know, the 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 it factor of who's hot who's not and all that shit but like you said dude there's enough talent in that city like you said that even if you didn't step outside the city limits that would keep you busy for a long time because there is a lot of dope artists a lot of different sounds uh, a lot of guys that have success that a lot of folks might not even know about you know what I mean Um, and that's what I always tell people I'm like what do you think success is like not everybody's gonna be Drake you know what I mean not everybody's gonna be on these multi-city tours that are just crazy and like there's just hundreds of thousands of fans and you're making millions like yeah don't get me wrong i'd love to see some people get that i mean shit give me that but i'm saying like (laughs) in general it's not it's you know these dudes that have spent their lives making music and getting paid off it and touring the world and you might not think they're jay-z but dude that's that's success to me i mean if you get to do what you love and get paid for it and travel and understand the world as a better place because you've gotten to have those experiences, man, that's success to me. So I think it's important, like you said, to kind of always look around and see the, the homegrown talent, try to show them love. It's crazy because, like, everybody want to be Jay-Z, want to be Drake, but it's okay to be fab. You know what I'm saying? It's, ain't, 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 ain't nothing wrong with people just respecting your craft and getting that show money. Yeah, for sure. And like I said, like, once and I think a lot of artists get it. Once you're in the game and you realize how hard it is to even make it to that level, um, you know, once if you get that, like you're very excited. I mean, it's a it's a big deal. I mean, I, getting a show is a big deal. I got to open up for Mob Deep last year. I got a call last minute. And I got I was at the El Rey Theater in downtown LA. These dudes called me to see if I open up for Mob Deep. I like was doing backflips. I wasn't getting paid for that shit. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like I got a few free beers out of the deal. That was dope. But it was like I got to open up for Mob. I got to try the opportunity to make some new fans. And then I got to go into the fucking crowd and watch them do Shook Ones live. Like that. that's just stuff you can't write. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just different. So you said you were partying with Bob Kraft and the Patriots when they won the, uh, when they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm low-key hating on you for that because Bob Kraft, Bob Crack goes down when it comes to celebrating the Super Bowls. We're going to switch it up a little bit. We're going to go into football. Deflategate. You, yes. in, you, you, you in another city watching your boy get dragged through the mud, Tom Brady. What, what is the reaction like in L.A. to the whole scandal? Because I'll tell you what it is out here. You, you put WEI on. And and they are defending Tom Brady to the death. You know what I'm saying? You put Felger and Maz on, and they're a little bit more contrarian. You know what I mean? So they go back and forth on it. But 
What's the reaction like out there in LA? Is it is it strictly Tom Brady's a cheater? It's another Bill Belichick scandal? Is it that? It's it's varied. Like I said, there's a lot of Boston cats out there, so people, you know, you, you got to kind of watch where you mouth off because you know how we get down. Like, we'll snap <laughs> on you. Like I was gonna say when you asked that question, I'm like I'm allowed to swear on this shit, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. It's it's nonsense. I think a lot of people. The one thing a lot of NFL fans can agree on, especially now, two years later is that Goodell's an asshole yeah. and everybody knows it. And it's, yeah. it's funny now watching the Packers kind of go through the same thing with Clay Matthews and, and Julius Peppers. Cause you've got this, you know, the PD scandal. I'm not saying that there's not something there. I'm not saying there is. I'm just saying like, we're talking now, like when you see what Goodell's allowed to do now, Tom Brady and the deflated footballs was never the, it was never the, the goal. Yeah. The goal was the expanded powers. And it just so happened to be that Tom Brady was in the crosshairs. So bang. And now you're dealing with, you know, even Aaron Rodgers said the other day, he's like, Hey, you know, part of the blame has to go to ourselves talking about the players in the union deal. Cause you know, they're allowing it. And I think now people are starting, even though they'll give me shit, I'll be at the gym working out. I'll, I'll put my Patriots shit on or like my Red Sox shit on. And people will be like, Oh yeah. Like after like one big dude's a Jets fan and he came in and he had like a deflated football and he threw it at me. And I was just like, this is, this is so stupid. Like he was, a, he was, he was a goofball. So I was like, you gotta, you just gotta remember too. LA is a little weird with shit like that. Cause they, they just got their, their team back. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't really have a team. So there's a lot of dudes out there that root for like random teams. So it's not like, it's like all people that hate the Patriots necessarily, but it's funny. The West coast hates Seattle almost more than they hate the Patriots. And I've noticed that because my whole life I've been used to getting hated on when you go to New York, you go up and down the Eastern seaboard, everybody hates the Patriots out on the West because they do have like teams like the Raiders or the San Fran. They all hate Seattle. You know what I mean? Like a lot more dudes hated Seattle than they did the Patriots. Not that they were thrilled about the Patriots being in the Super Bowl again either, but they, they don't fuck with Seattle, especially the Giants fans for, uh, uh or sorry, the Niners fans for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, it's a little weird, but you know me, I, I don't, I talk shit with the best of them, but it, it is, it's bullshit. I mean, again, it's, this has nothing to do with Brady's cell phone. This has nothing to do with Brady's personal decisions. It has nothing to do with the fucking footballs. Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time. And a lot of people can argue that with Joe Montana. Fine. Fair enough. Good argument. Aside from that, you got nothing. Yeah. So I don't have the time for you to sit there and say, he's out here cheating. Like, do you guys have been getting your asses kicked for 13 goddamn years under the Belichick reign. You know, we've been to six Super Bowls, two of which we have lost that you guys love to harp on, but both times Brady gave the lead to the defense and they just couldn't come away with a win. And it happens. Like, the Giants were stacked both years. You're playing against other fucking professionals. It's just, it's it's a tired game and you're talking about probably the most decorated NFL player maybe of, of, of our generation by the time he's done. You know, and you're like you said, you're dragging them through the mud for what? So you can be a fucking a boss and yipping and yapping and telling people what to do. It's the day's gonna come soon where his head gets cut off, and it'll be fun to watch. I mean, I just I, I can't stand the guy to be honest. I still I still tell people that it's not about the footballs, it's not about the air pressure. It's about the fact that Goodell has the right to punish anyone, however he wants. Yeah. You and know. then he got this other asshole beating the shit out of his girlfriend yesterday with the kicker. Like, what, he had 30 separate hits on her? Yeah. And I, I think it's annoying when people, like, put a stack to deflate gate up against, like, a, an abuse case. I don't even think they should be in the same sentence. But, it's again, it's not about the cases. It's about the way in which Goodell just sees fit. And this guy gets suspended one game. So it's kind of like, well, why isn't this going through a more intricate process? Why aren't there people that are hired to kind of do these judiciary-type, you know, meetings or hearings 
to handle it so that people, you know, so things is fair. Like that's basically the end of it. Instead of having this power hungry nut job, you know, who's telling all these unbelievably gifted athletes when they can and can't play. I mean, these motherfuckers should be thanking us when Tom Brady gets on the field. You should be kissing the grass on the fucking field. I don't care what field you are. When he shows up to play in your stadium, you should be doing that. Like that's a gift you're watching. You're you're watching God work out there. This is God engineering. So like I don't I don't have time to listen to the oh he's whack. Like, it's like when Rogers comes to play. Yeah. You think I'm gonna take that for granted? Aaron Rodgers comes to watch a fo- throw a football. I don't give a fuck if he beats us forty to nothing. I'm gonna be like yo, I watched Aaron Rodgers play and he was a beast. Like end of story. Where's uh Where's Ted Wells investigating John Brown, Josh Brown right now? Yeah, he's like Ted Wells is probably smoking the same shit Josh Brown was when he got suspended. <laughs> <laughs> I would be. His publicists are smoking crack. I don't know what the publicists in the NFL do. Yeah, I, I don't mean, think they do much. I don't even think they have a job. And 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 the thing right now, you at the next collective bargaining agreement, Goodell could you know he's got all the leverage now because now it's proven that he has all the power. So he's gonna say, fine. You want a third party arbitrator? Okay, eighteen game season. You know that's yeah. something that the players' and association then, and is. I wonder if they strike. I mean. At, the money's huge. I mean, I doubt it happens, but it's it's a threat. It's a viable threat. I mean, Goodell, Goodell allowed he allowed fake referees to referee games for for what was it six games of a season. I don't think he gives a shit about the product on the field. It's gonna bring money regardless. Fantasy football is still the biggest fantasy uh, fantasy sport to date. FanDuel right now is bigger than ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that that's the position they're in, and it's it's even more unfortunate that Tom Brady was the example set. You know what I mean? Because if there was no Adrian Peterson, if there's if there was no Ray Rice video, then there'd be no Tom Brady suspension. It'd be a fifty thousand dollar fine, in my opinion, hands down. Yeah, and it would just be a bunch of whispering and crying about the cheaters. Yeah, it's 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 obnoxious. Now it's funny. Now you got guys like James Harrison, like guys that are running out of fucks to give towards the end of the careers. That I mean, to have a player outwardly call like you know him a crook is hilarious yeah. it's getting to that point where it's like you know they're fed up and it's again it's not about pats or steelers or packers it's it's about rules and it's about fairness and it's just it's crazy how it's spun this far out of control it's crazy i've never i've never <clears throat> seen a player a player commissioner situation as bad as us against them now oh it's 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 amazing and i i, I, I honest to god do think they eat it up i think they do use it as a bit of a you know, I've been out here. I've been lucky enough to hang out with some of the players at times, and you hear them talk about it. And they, they say, they say it. They know. Look, everybody hates us, and we don't fucking like them either. You know what I mean? It's like we, we're not worried about them, but we don't like them either. We're gonna go out. We're gonna beat you up, and that's when you see things like the score get run up or trick plays get brought out. You already know what it is. Yep. It's like last year in the Philly game, they're throwing a Brady down the sideline. Yeah, it's trying to help them get back in it, but it's like part of it's a stunt job. It's like a, it's like making a mockery of people that are hating on greatness. And and Bill and Bill Belichick has always been one to throw an occasional pass or two to run up the score if he just Absolutely. goes back to the undefeated season. Absolutely, <laughs> I, I really couldn't blame him because it was a joy to watch. I mean, another thing we took for granted—I don't think it'll ever get old—is watching Brady throw to Moss. And Moss wasn't even in his prime, but the fact, oh man, just the fact. Everyone always talks about how we lost, but I always look back at that season. I'm like, I know it sucks. Don't get me wrong, but dude. We want, we got to see some shit, man. Oh yeah, the, the 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 play of that season to me was watching uh, Moss beat Darrell Revis in his prime, yeah. uh, and Brady puts it right in 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 Moss's breadbasket, and Moss catches it one handed, and yeah. Darrell got beat so bad that he faked a hamstring injury. 
Yeah, yeah. He, pull, he pulls up limping, and Moss just, you know, he, he does his little jacket rip, and that, that season right there, it's a shame that it ended with a defeat. And that second loss to the Super uh, to the Giants, it's a shame that the the ball touched Wes Welker's hands, you know, and yeah. and that that was game right there. Yeah, yeah, it was game. It was a tough one, and but then the, the way I kind of always like <laughs> comforted myself with that loss was, uh, you know, that throw to Manningham. I mean, it's just, it just not defendable. I mean, yeah. sometimes big players make big plays. We've seen it with Brady. We've seen it with guys like you know Brewski. Uh, or, or guys, you know, up and down the ranks over the years. Um, you know, Kevin Falk comes to mind. But, you know, look, it, it sucks. But sometimes a guy that's paid millions of dollars, <laughs> trains for a living to be a quarterback in the NFL, makes a big-time money play. And unfortunately, sometimes it lands right in your mouth. <laughs> Where you at on the Red Sox right now? I like the Red Sox. I like the team. I think they're the most exciting team for sure since 2013, not just because we're winning, but because the talent is so extremely good. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I'm a base. So baseball is definitely my favorite sport. I grew up playing baseball. I mean, football is a close second, but baseball is my, like, I know that game better than any other sport for me personally. And uh, I've always loved watching them draft guys and bring guys up and even the guys that don't work out seeing just seeing you know different guys how they struggle with the league how they adapt and the the, the abilities that some of our young kids have are just un- i mean mookie bats you're looking at you're looking at a freak you're looking at a five foot nine 180 pound outfielder that is putting up numbers that nobody else in the league's putting up uh you know xander bogarts is he's just a stud um, you know, in the young pitching, Eduardo Rodriguez, I really liked that trade when it happened. I'm glad he's starting to pan out. I know he's been hurt. Um, so I love the team. I really do. I love the young nucleus. I think it's a great send-off for Ortiz regardless of what happens. If we don't win the World Series this year, whatever, it's more they've had a, they've had a successful season. It's been a really good learning experience for the younger guys, um, and it's been a great send-off for Ortiz as well. Um, that being said, it is they, they, they're a frustrating bunch of times. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with we've been marred by injuries in the bullpen. I think Farrell is making some questionable decisions, and I know people are hot after him. Um, but I think it's important to remember, I mean, we're devastated with injuries in that bullpen uh, all year, even before the season started. And I think that's, if you look at you know a lot of our big losses, it's because of the bullpen. I mean, you want to talk about a god. Big Poppy, the large father, is the baseball equivalent of Jesus in this town. You know what I mean? If there's if there's a Jesus monument, you got Larry Bird, you got Tom Brady, you got Bobby Orr and 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 Big Poppy's there now. You know, yeah. it, it used yep. to be it used to be Pedro. Um I, I think Big Poppy is, you know, <laughs> the Jesus of the baseball community in the city of Boston. Yeah, and I it was an interesting article they wrote about how, you know, it was like where does he stand like in ranks with Ted Williams? And I think I think it's a it's a cool question because for one to be to be mentioned in the same sentence as Ted Williams is about as high as a compliment as you can get as a hitter, yeah. um, and then two, it's tough because you know they're just totally different errors and so forth. But I, I agree. I mean, this guy has won three chips after we hadn't won in eighty six years. Um, he's done everything asked. I mean, everybody talks about two thousand four. I think two thousand thirteen was a little more personal for me just based on what had gone on with the marathon which would have gone on on the way up to it. And baseball was kind of my escape that year when things were tough for me personally. Um, if you go back and look at what David Ortiz did in the 2013 World Series, I'm not sure you've ever seen it. I don't think you've seen it in, I don't think you've seen it in wiffle ball. I don't think you've seen it in softball. I don't think you've seen it in t-ball. The, boy, the, the, the man batted 700 
in the goddamn World Series against that Cardinals pitching staff, which they had at least three guys over 100 miles an hour. And it's just, yeah, I mean, he deserves every bit of his credit. I got a good inside story for you. I, I talked to Clay Buckholz the other day. Nice. I, uh, I bumped into him at an establishment out here, and uh, it was really cool. He, he shared some great stories about the 13th season, how much it meant to everybody. But he, when he talked about David Ortiz, man, it said it all. He said, look, the way you guys love David Ortiz is the way we love David Ortiz. When David speaks, you listen. When you have an issue on or off the field, David's there. He's not only a baseball player that's tremendous. He's a great teammate. He's a great friend. Uh, I, if you don't like David Ortiz, it's probably probably saying a lot about you as a human being. Um, and it is. It's great. Boston's been, you know, we've had some racial issues in the past. I think it's been a beautiful thing through baseball and some other sports, you know, to see the Dominican influence our city, another underappreciated and underrepresented group. And, uh, you know, to see David Ortiz, like you said, Pedro, David Ortiz, without them, you don't win shit, nothing. Danny, yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, and they, I agree with you. I think if you make the monuments up there and you make the, you know, you, you, your big men that are responsible for greatness, David Ortiz absolutely deserves to be up there. I mean, when you, when you even look at that half inning, we're struggling, we're not hitting, we're swinging at first and second pitch, balls, not even strikes. That half inning, Ortiz, you know, rallies the truth. Something that you see in football, you know what I mean? Where, where in football, sometimes you got a captain on the sideline who brings everyone together and kind of, you know, does a, a rah-rah pitch. Ortiz calmly has the command of the whole dugout. You got Napoli listening. You got, uh, you know, Xander Bogarts is a young player in his first World Series there listening. You got Will Middlebrooks listening, Salta Lamacchia. And then that next half inning, Johnny Gomes hits one of the biggest home runs in that series. And there's, there's, you can't correlate that to, there's, there's no way you can't say that wasn't because of his leadership. You know 100%. I mean? Yeah, I mean, and that was as much as what Buck Holtz had said. He's like, dude, I'll never forget. You know, we were talking about the Victorino Grand Slam I was at for ALCS, which was also after the Ortiz Grand Slam that year's ALCS. But, yeah, to see Gomes get up there after that, like you said, I mean, even the announcers were almost enamored by it. They were like, my God, like, look at this man. Like, he's just – he was so focused and, like, you know, when he, listen, when he speaks, everybody's listening. And, you know, sure enough, like you said – Gomes had that look in his eye. He got his pitch, and man, he didn't miss. And it turned it turned everything around. I mean, it, they that that team had no. I'll be frank. That team had no business getting out of that Tiger series. No, nope. um, they had no business. That was a much better team. The Tigers were, but for whatever reason, man, after Ortiz hit that grand slam, you know, and the guy that we had the right plays come up, and Victorino was, I mean, amazingly clutch. Some of the best clutch hitting I've ever seen anybody on the Red Sox have. Um, that was just. That was just unbelievable. I mean, and then for them to go on and win, that was a storybook ending through and through. And, you know, you're, I really am proud no matter what happens this year with our team. You know, Ortiz has gotten three. He was a major reason for all three. And, you know, he's gotten a nice send-off regardless. I mean, it, if you look at his numbers this year, it's it's preposterous. I mean, he's I think he's an MVP candidate. Yeah, uh, so yeah. it's, it's absurd. Well, I mean, there's, there's to me, there's no reason why you don't just write up a little contract slide it through his agent and say, yo, Ortiz, if you want to, here's 25 mil for next year. Yeah. You know, here's 25 mil. Yeah, it's just money. If you want to, if you <laughs> want it, you know what I mean? And if not, cool, you can retire. But, if you know, for this guy to hit above 300, 20-plus bombs, you know, playing competitive baseball in August, I don't know if you saw the game, you know, today, last night, where he's, he's – Hits a double. He's sliding into second. You know what I mean. He just tied. Uh, I believe is Willie Mays for most doubles in in, major, in the majors. You know, it's like 
This man has had an unbelievable career. It's a shame. It's a shame that I don't think he's going to get into the Hall of Fame because of the whole PED thing. You know yeah, what I, mean? I think I think I think he will. Um, it, but but it's interesting because if he does, then it's going to beg the question. Well, you know, for a lot of people, not us. I mean, the, the, the thing with Ortiz is he's always been a little bit different than those other guys. He always yeah. cooperated and he always did voluntary testing before I believe before the uh, the, the report came out. Um, that being said, he was named in the investigation, but was never convicted formally. So it's like, I, I, I'd be, I mean, be, based on his personality and the way, what he's meant to the game, I'd be shocked. But if it is, it is a shame. I mean, he's, he's very deserved. He's the best DH of all time. Um, he's, I think he's safe to say, no question. And, you know, I mean, that guy is responsible. Uh, he, he's been the face of the Red Sox offense for, you know, a few years by himself now. Um, and, you know, it's going to go down also as one of the best signings. And again, the reason we signed him, Pedro Martinez. Pedro yeah, Martinez yeah. was the one who came and said, look, you got to sign this guy. He's a beast. We all know him from the Dominican. Everybody knows he's got the juice. You just got to find a way to get it, you know, mold him a little bit. He was a little rusty or a little raw, whatever it was. And then sure enough, boom. People forget he was losing that bats to Jeremy Giambi. Crazy. Like, when you think about that, this dude was losing that bass to Jeremy Giambi. He was a left-handed power hitter off the bench who got released by the Twins. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And now he's going to go down as one of the most clutch, probably the most clutch hitter in, in the history of baseball. Right. And, and and I do think the city of Boston sometimes take for, takes for granted greatness. You know what I mean? Because... You've been spoiled. I, <laughs> oh, yeah. I know myself, you know, like... I'm a I'm a diehard Celtics fan. You know what I mean. And in watching uh, the Kevin Garnett era, I I watched I want to say at least seventy games out of every season because I said to myself, you don't know when you're gonna watch something like this ever again. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And to watch Kevin Garnett play as hard in Game 42 on the road in Milwaukee of a back to back as he was playing in L.A. in the finals was something magical to see, you know what I mean? And for Big Poppy to to have the kind of season he's having, um, all he wants is competitive baseball. He doesn't want the season to be over in June like it has been the past two years, you know what I mean? So to, to see this and to see the maturity of these young kids, the fact that you got you got probably three cornerstones in Jackie Bradley, Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, who I think are all under the age of 25, are all still not even hitting arbitration. They're all on their rookie deals. I mean, you're setting yourself up for for playoff runs for years to come. You know Absolutely. what I mean? And and to be able to to watch Mookie, who's got the the the, the quickest hands I I think I've seen since Nomar. Uh, Xander is just so smooth at the plate that you know he's. The way he sets up pitchers is almost Manny-esque. You know what I mean? The guy's yep. hitting, hitting above, you know, 315 for a reason. And Jackie Bradley Jr. is the best center field I've ever seen in my life. In my life. And, and, I, and I, I, I thought I saw some good ones. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's fun. It's fun. I just wish, you know, um, I, w- I hope, you know, we don't, this bullpen doesn't, doesn't uh, derail us from a deep run, and I hope John Farrell doesn't derail us from from a deep run because, uh, you know, he's he's not an advantage in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's getting a little in his own head too. I think I think he knows now. It's kind of he's working with kind of a half deck, and that's that is kind of when you start to see managers either falter or ascend. I think Farrell's a pretty good manager. I think he's. I, I think the biggest 
compliment I'd have to give the coaching staff is clearly Chili Davis. My God, yeah. I mean, the, hitting, the hitting coach. Yeah. Just, I mean, you have to give them credit. I mean, these guys struggled bad. I mean, Jackie Bradley Jr. struggled mightily. People were talking about trying to release him or trade him. Yep. Um, you know, and you forget how young he was when they brought him up. He wasn't all the way there. And then for him to come back and have the year he had, man, I'm really happy for him. And then again, I hate to always bring race into the thing, but I think it's really important, again, that it's a diverse bunch. I mean, we talk about for, for years, we major leagues talking about a lack of uh, African-American players and stuff being brought into the game. Kids like Mookie Betts are fucking unbelievable, man. They're really good for the game. They're good for the city. They're good for the diversity on the team. And they're good for winning. I mean, this dude is just a beast. He's an animal. And it's really nice to see that you have everybody across the board, um, you know, kind of, it just looks like, it looks like one of the strongest clubhouses in the league. I mean, I watch a lot of baseball, even not Red Sox related. And it just looks like one of those clubhouses that no matter what, they got each other's back and, and it's, it's, there's a way to do things there. And, and it's great to see, it's great to see everyone, uh, you know, firing and all, all cylinders, but I do, I think they can get in the playoffs and I think they can make a deep run. It's more just, uh, their, their starting pitching is really going to have to buckle down, down the stretch. And then hopefully somehow, I mean, I think Kimbrell's the real deal. I think Kimbrell's going to be okay. I think Kimbrell's going to eat that pressure up pretty good down the line when it gets real big. Um, but it, the key is getting to him. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think next year you're going to see David Price and Kimbrell go through that transition that Josh Becker went after uh, in his second year in Boston. Well, yeah, so, I mean, what was he? Seventeen and three now, something like that. Like yeah. that's. I mean, he's having a he's having a monster year, and it was it was he had a he had a tough year last year. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know he signed a big contract, new city, smaller ballpark. Um, same thing with David Price. I think next year you're gonna see David Price be the ace of the staff. I think you're gonna see Kimbrel shut down. You know, in the ninth, not be a hard attack closer. Because, yeah, you can throw 98, but if you don't know where the ball's going, man, so what? Just, you know, you're Daniel Bard now. Yeah, Joe, Joe Kelly. It's yeah, like yeah. 100, 101 miles an hour, and he's still getting sauced. I'm just, I'm in disbelief at how you can have an arm that electric, and you can't even get a, a half-decent breaking ball in the corner because right there is a 3 ERA. Yep. Throw that hard and have a breaking ball on the on the corner as a reliever, you should be good for for, for a start, you know, for, for being on the team and, I don't know what is going on. But like you said, Daniel Bard, for a year, it looked like he was going to be the future. And yep. Bye-bye. You know yeah. yeah, thank you, Bobby. Bobby Valentine. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you talked about diversity in the city. And, and with this, um, we'll wrap up. You know, Boston, I think, unfairly gets a bad rap for being a racist city. You know, I got into it with Amin Al-Hassan from ESPN on Twitter. Um, you know, because... He he blatantly on ESPN.com stated that African-American free agents uh, don't consider Boston because they think it's a racist city. And that shit pisses me off, man, because the, the way people talk about the city, you would think that there's just people walking down the street, down the street you know, screaming, you know, hate slurs and, and, and racist names and all this and that. I guess it's different when you're in it. You know what I mean, and and we yeah. don't see we don't see that you know because look at your circle, you know minorities. My circle, I'm Puerto Rican, and it's just you know uh, it's, it's it's full of Colombians, Cape Verdeans, blacks, whites. It don't matter. Mm-hmm. The city, you know, rides for each other. I'm not saying that there hasn't been racist racist times in the city, but do you think we still get unfairly criticized and and, and unfair rap because it was almost like a relief when Al Horford signed with the Celtics because it was like, all right, not only is this our first major free agent that we've signed, but he's also a minority. 
and he yeah, chose and to he's, he chose to come here to a cold city because of our basketball because of, we have a good coach because we have a good school system good colleges you know what i mean like yeah 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 for sure i think i think it's a big deal for to, to answer your question i think it's unfair for sure for one reason one reason only i think there's always racism wherever you're at right so yeah. it's boston dc la wherever there's racism we know that the, the thing with boston is and this is going back to what i was kind of saying with the acting thing in the mainstream version of things and uh, I saw Prano, I think Prano was talking about this the other day on something he was on. But it's like, dude, people think Boston is like this like blue collar, like Larry Bird waving the towel around, like Whitey Bulger's cleaning up the streets in Southie. Like yeah. Southie is poodle shit in Starbucks. Nobody can afford rent. Yep. And the people that are getting pushed out, like you said, know the city as good as anyone. And I think that where the racism lies in Boston, like many places – it has now moved a little bit more. It's almost passe to be like a flat-out racist. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. a, like I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It absolutely does. I'm saying you walk around Boston, you start dropping M-bombs and start being a total douche. Like someone's going to ring your bell. Like someone's yeah. going to find you and they're going to ring your bell. Yeah. That being said, the real racist stuff where I think they do have a point is the institutionalized things. That does not apply to our athletes in Boston anymore. Yeah. I don't – I just don't – I don't see it. I mean there's a, as, a, as a black athlete or as a Spanish athlete – or is it any athlete of color? You're, I, there's no way you can tell me you don't deal with racism. You know what I'm saying? Like, because you're always going to get some clown from some part of the city, from some town. You strike out. You're an N-word, or you you do something, you know, good. You know, you beat your someone's team. You're. It's like the Bruins controversy with the, the N-word tweets, and that was also fabricated for the most part. That turned out to be a lot of different Twitter accounts from all over the U.S. and Canada, not just the greater Boston area. So I think, yes, there's always going to be racism and it's a problem and something we always got to keep working at and it's something we got to be serious with. But, you know, it's funny you brought up Al Horford because there was a great picture in the clubhouse and it was Al Horford. Is Al, Al Horford's Dominican, right? Yeah, yeah. It was Al Horford and it was it was David Ortiz. And, and it was Hanley. Just, Shout and out Hanley. to Hanley. And it's just like, yo, that's dope, man. Like, that's my – and that's what I was telling people. Like, that's the thing I wish when I tell people about Boston. Like, oh, yeah, tell me about the crazy stories in Southie. I'm like, no, dude, like – you got to come to my city with me. I promise you this. There's, there's enough white boy bars with like crazy drunk Irish dudes. Yeah, for sure. But I'm telling you, man, you got to get some foe in friggin' Fields Corner. You got to come through and have some CV, CV food with my homies. You got uh. to come to a Haitian New Year's. That shit is lit. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's a lot of love and a lot of community in, the, in, the, in, in, in Boston. And I think your biggest point there, I would agree, people outside the city who don't really know what the city is like and what the racial climate's like kind of just – just throwing their two cents in. And it's like, listen, I don't mind you making a claim, but you got to research it, man. Yeah. There's definitely racism in Boston. We look at it like our, our, our downtown, we are, we're ravaged with stuff, you know, the police departments and stuff, you know, with the, with the politicians and, and school systems. And, and then now the housing crisis, there's plenty of racism in the city yeah. and we have to combat it. We have to deal with it. But yes, the way that they report it is almost like it's the sexy style of racism. Like nobody wants to go there because there's a bunch of crazy white boys with burning crosses yelling N-words in Celtics jerseys. It's like, dude, that shit is just not, that's not reality because as you and I know, you know, you walk around Boston and you start mouthing off like that, dude. If there's one thing Bostonians are about, it's about like, you got hands. You get slapped. Like, <laughs> no, like you'll get beat up by somebody. You won't know what color will hit you. You get blasted. Like it's, it's end of story. <laughs> it's it's funny. Me, my boy Chino, my boy O was in a bar in uh, Somerville, and my boy Chino started recording it because my boy O and this white dude started arguing about football, 
And Chino's caption on the video was like, man, why can't we go to some bar and not argue with somebody about sports? You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, so yeah. It's like, it don't matter what the race is, man. You, you, you disagree on sports and you got debate for months. Oh, for months. You, you, your families broke up over it over here. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Nat, where can, uh, where can people follow you? Where can they uh, get your music? You know, p- put the layout out there. Yeah, for sure. So it's Nat Anglin, uh, at Nat Anglin on Twitter. That's a great way to find me. I'm always on there. Um, you can get me on Facebook. I have uh, Nat Anglin Music on Facebook. Um, my album, Welcome to Los Angeles, is now available on all major platforms. You can get it on iTunes if you want to pay for it. If you want to stream it for free, you can cop it on SoundCloud. You can get it on Spotify, Tidal. Um, you can get it pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, I'm working hard. It's Google Play. I'm just trying to get it out there. Like I said, I don't care. People pay for it. I just thought it was a good idea, like you were saying. Give everybody uh, as least excuses as you can so that, you know, that they don't have a reason not to listen to it. I know time is precious. And I know uh, music's not for everyone or certain music, but, you know, all I ask people is give it a shot. If you give it a shot, man, I tip my cap. I don't care if you hated it, if you loved it. I, I really do appreciate it. I love feedback. I love connecting with not only fans, but people who are other artists and stuff. So, yeah, please get at me at Nat Anglin, or NatAnglin.com as well, NatAnglin.com. Nat, thank you for taking the time, man. We've been talking about this for about a month now. Um, you know, we, 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 we got technology involved. You and AZ, I'm out here in Massachusetts. But I appreciate you taking this hour to rap with me for a minute. Um, it's your boy Elliot from Boston. It's Nat Anglin. It's the EFB podcast, man.